welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today's guest is Dr Colin M. Byrne, author of Dying Harder, Action Movies of the 1980s, an entertaining and insightful analysis of action cinema from 1980 to 1989. Action movies have always been in the news, but no more so than recently where a variety of high-profile remakes have brought the genre back into the public eye as never before. What do you think, Colin, is the reason for the enduring popularity of these films? Well, I think it's the, the strike accord of the general public. Really, action movies are a form of wish fulfilment. We know what it's like in everyday life. We often have to put up with criminals getting away with murder and you know, burglaries, burglars getting lenient sentences and so on, and politicians doing awful things and not being punished. But in action movies, the baddies generally get a bullet through their forehead. So I think they have enduring appeal because they meet our needs for a wish-fulfillment fantasy. Um, what Michael Winner once said that uh, the general public likes films in which the baddies come to a very bad death in the last reel, which the villains are properly punished. Now, the 1980s are sometimes regarded as a golden age for the action movie. Uh, it saw a number of franchises such as the, the Die Hard series, the Rambo series and various others uh, coming into the public eye. Which do you think are the series that we will look back on in terms of uh, their box office success as having had the most enduring appeal? I think it's got to be Die Hard and the sequels which followed it because Die Hard is different from some of the other action movies in that it has inspired a lot of copies. I mean, there have been a huge number of films which have been inspired by the success of Die Hard. Uh, for example, Executive Decision, Under Siege 1, Under Siege 2, White House Down, Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, and so on. There have been many films have copied the basic formula, which I think is one of the basic plots in cinema, actually. But it was, it was done extremely well in the original Die Hard movie back in 1988. So I think there will be continuing remakes of Die Hard for the foreseeable future, and who knows, they may even remake the original Die Hard with a new younger actor playing John McClane. One of the interesting things about Die Hard, of course, is the way that it popularises the lone hero figure who's very much an everyman who's up against the odds. Why do you think this has become an enduring motif in American cinema? I think it's because the audience identifies with the hero. It was always made clear in, in Die Hard that John McClane was really just an ordinary guy. He wasn't superhuman. And that why, that's why I think it was the right decision to have Bruce Willis in the title role. Because if they had someone like Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had actually been suggested for inclusion in the starring role in Die Hard, it, it would have seemed more of a fantasy. Whereas we can identify with John McClane and the problems he encounters and the very simple solutions he comes up with. And to what extent do you think the political climate both nationally within America and internationally in terms of global geopolitics, do you feel that these ideological issues would bear down upon action filmmaking uh, in the 1980s? Well, it was, it was undoubtedly a golden era for action films, and I think there's a number of reasons for this. One was that America was healing from the Vietnam War. 
I mean, the Vietnam War didn't really end till about 1975 when the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam, even though there had supposedly been a peace agreement a couple of years before. And for a few years afterwards, America was scarred by the Vietnam War, both individually and collectively. There was a great feeling of national guilt that they had perhaps done something really terrible by going to Vietnam. And there was also great anger at the, the politicians for letting down the public. And I think America couldn't really produce action movies in the late 70s or early 80s because of this collective guilt about Vietnam. But once they'd got over this and moved on from it, they were able to produce all these action films almost as a sort of catharsis for the Vietnam War, particularly the second Rambo film. Uh, the first Rambo film, First Blood, was all about the way that returning veterans from the Vietnam War were treated very, very poorly by the authorities. Whereas the second Rambo film, which was the one that really you know, set the, the uh, mould for the Rambo films that followed, it was all about what might have happened if the American military had been given a chance to do what it was capable of if the American military had actually gained the upper hand in Vietnam because the, the second Rambo movie was really like a kind of Weed Eagles Dare set in Southeast Asia. And one of the key topics to affect American filmmaking of the 1980s and indeed filmmaking elsewhere was that of the Cold War. Um, how do you feel that the tension between the USA and the Soviet Union uh, came to inform the tone of action films? Well, what happened was initially that the Russians were portrayed as the bad guys. I mean, you saw in the in the second Rambo movie, which was made, what, about 1985, the Russians were portrayed as the villains. But gradually, when Gorbachev got into power and the new policy of detente was arrived, the Russians could no longer be portrayed as villains and instead they were often portrayed as allies. So we can see the beginnings of this in the um, the first Timothy Dalton Bond movie actually, um, which was The Living Daylights, where Bond was actually working with a Russian general, General Pushkin, and working against elements of the Soviet military who were effectively renegades. So there was a, there was a change in the role of Russians in, this, in the 60s and 70s. They were often the villains in action movies, but then in the 80s, they ten, tended more to be viewed as uh, allies. And of course, then after the Russians became our friends, they could no longer be used as villains. So there was a period when the Iraqis, for example, were often used as the villains in action movies. And now that has had to change because with the change in the Middle East, you know, the Iraqis and the Arabs can no longer be um, used as villains in action movies and the latest trend I believe in action movies is for them the villains to be far-right individuals. Now action movies often have a reputation for being a little bit larger than life and one of the other key elements of um, the highly successful action movie wave of the 1980s was that of the science fiction boom which we see in films like James Cameron's Aliens and John McTiernan's Predator. In what way do you feel these films have come to have an impact on science fiction down the line? I think they have shown that science fiction can go in a new direction because prior to these two films that you mentioned, there weren't really many science fiction films which incorporated a lot of action. I mean, if we take, for example, 2001, 
a space odyssey. There's virtually no action in the whole film, although it is a, obviously a most brilliant science fiction film. But James Cameron, I think, introduced a new genre with Aliens that he showed that it was possible to combine the science fiction film and the action movie and probably also the war movie because um, Aliens is really a kind of war movie set in space and Predator as well was also a, a sort of fusion between a traditional science fiction movie and an action movie. So it showed that science fiction could move in a new direction which involved a great deal of action and thrills. One of the other uh, key issues of the action film, of course, has been its enduring quality and the fact that we have seen, certainly in recent years, um, as a wave of remakes and uh, reimaginings of uh, 1980s action film archetypes. Why do you think it is that filmmakers are drawn to these films and keep remaking them? Well, I really think it's down to money because film companies will make a film if they believe that it is going to make money. And I think they believe that remaking something that has worked before, either in the form of a straight remake or a prequel or a sequel, is more likely to make money than coming up with a completely new concept. I mean, that, that is the reason that most scripts which contain completely new ideas are rejected, that most film production companies continue to make remakes and reboots and sequels and prequels until they squeezed every last dollar out of the concept. So up until now we've talked about some of the most successful action movies, the ones that have lingered longest in the public imagination. What films, in your opinion, were less successful and why do you think that was? Um, less successful films would probably be some of the um, copies of Die Hard. I've mentioned already some of the very successful and critically acclaimed um, copies of Die Hard like Executive Decision and um, Air Force One and so on. But there were also some rather cheap remakes of Die Hard which didn't do so well. For example, many of um, Jean-Claude Van Damme's movies were not very successful because they were perceived as rather cheap remakes of the Die Hard formula, which is probably what they were. And when writing the book, did you find your expectations were challenged by watching again some of the films from that period? Or did you pretty much find that uh, your, your memories were accurate to the experience that you had? Well, obviously, in, before I wrote the book, I had to take each of these movies and DVD and watch them. In some cases, I might watch them twice usually making very, very detailed notes as I watched the movies. And I found that by doing this, I became very engrossed in the films and really experienced them um, in a way that I had, no, had not experienced them before. I would notice things that I'd never noticed the first time I'd seen them in the, in the cinema. And I think I realised that most of these action movies made during the 80s were actually of a very high quality and perhaps weren't fully appreciated but either by the audience or the critics at the time. I know that uh, in your books you've often mentioned particular aspects of modern filmmaking like computer-generated imagery and washed-out colour uh, as being two particular tools of the filmmaker's trade that have been overused in recent years. Do you feel that the success of action movies in the 1980s 
came down to the use of practical effects. Oh, oh yes, I would say that almost certainly, because I, I would say that um, if many of the effects in the first Die Hard film had been created using CGI, I don't believe the movie would have the same impact. Because although I know that great strides have been made in CGI in the last 20 or 30 years, but despite that, I think that uh, a sequence that has been done for real looks real. And a, a well-constructed miniature that has been properly filmed with the right techniques will always look more convincing than the best CGI. And it's interesting that you should mention Die Hard because, of course, it's a film that benefits from the outstanding uh, matte painting that's used in the office sequences uh, and also the uh, explosion that takes out the lower levels of the building which was achieved by uh, a series of flashbulbs, each of them going off at the same time. Do you feel there are any other practical effects in Die Hard that were worthy of note? Oh yes, well I mean all, all the explosions and gunfire effects were done as far as possible for real. I mean, to give you an example, there's a scene where John McLean um, is in an office and all the glass is broken by machine gun fire and he then has to walk on the glass and apparently that was done using real glass because they thought it would look more realistic than the usual kind of artificial glass they use and for that sequence Bruce Willis had to wear fake rubber feet which were rather like moccasins which he and he, he wore these fake rubber feet which had metal soles over his own bare feet to enable that sequence to be filmed. But I think the overall impression of Die Hard is of great realism. I mean, the, the sequence towards the end where the helicopter crashes, as much as possible of it was used real helicopters and then they cut to a radio controlled model helicopter crashing against a very large miniature, which I think looked very effective. Looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, you do mention in Predator the uh, slightly less than believable use of a minigun. Yes, that I think was a bit of artistic license because a, a minigun isn't really a practical weapon for a single person to carry because it's so, it's so damn heavy and it would require a huge battery pack and a huge box containing all its ammunition. I think that was really just a bit of artistic license. And apparently when they were filming um, Predator, they actually had to run the minigun at a fraction of its normal um, firing speed because when they filmed it at its normal speed of about 3,000 rounds per minute, all the camera recorded was a blur. So it was a bit of artistic license, but all the same, I think it, it did work in the context of the film. And I think if they, if they made a remake of Predator, which by the way I know they have done, if they, if they made it without the minigun, people would notice its absence. So it was really highly unrealistic to have a minigun in the film, but all the same, I think in the context of the film and the way in which it was used, I think it did actually work. And it was one of the things that people always remember from the film was this character Blaine with his great big minigun, which he called Painless. Interestingly, some commentators have noted that the conventions of 1980s sci-fi uh, have been in many ways uh, seen to influence later filmmaking, um, to revolutionise how people have looked at the role of technology, and in particular, at the time, the kind of anxieties related to the encroachment of digital technology uh, on everyday life. 
Do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh yes, oh yes, because I mean, uh, I mean, technology is affecting our lives right now. I mean, for example, closed circuit television is just about everywhere now. And it has, you know, beneficial results in that it helps to solve some crimes, but it does mean that we are being snooped on all the time. So technology is with us all the time, and this has been reflected in mobile phones and smartphones. I mean, look how often the plots of action movies will feature mobile phones and emails and texts and so on. It's very much woven into the fabric of screenplays these days. Another film that you mentioned in your book is the hugely successful box office uh, smash hit Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now that's a film that is often seen to be essentially nostalgic in nature, looking back as it does to sort of 1930s film serials. What aspects do you think of cinema past came to influence the filmmaking of the 1980s? Well, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a very good example because apparently the idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark actually goes back to Star Wars because George Lucas, when he was um, first coming up with the concepts for Star Wars back in the 70s, he looked back at the classic serials of the 1930s and he actually came up with an alternative plan for a film, an alternative idea which would involve a playboy archaeologist who um, was also an action-adventurer. And that later was developed into Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think, though, that the many of the action movies of the 1980s didn't really have their roots much in anything that has gone before. I mean, I did mention in the book that... Um, Die Hard possibly could have been inspired by a film called Sailor of the King, which was a British war movie made in 1953. And it's all about a Canadian sailor who is taken prisoner aboard a German cruiser and he manages to break free and then he gets ashore and he manages to hold off the Germans with a single rifle while bare chested and he prevents the German sailors patching a torpedo hole. So in this in this way it is a bit similar um to Die Hard in the sense that it's a it's a, a single person with a bare chest and one gun who is holding off a group of Germans. I also mentioned in the book how the plot of Die Hard is actually very similar to an episode of The Professionals, which was first broadcast in 1977, because there's an episode of The Professionals, which is called um, Close Quarters, written by Brian Clemens. And in this episode, uh, Bodie, along with his girlfriend, have to hold off a gang of German terrorists. Bodie is injured, he has an injured hand, and he holds them off initially with his handgun, and then he captures a submachine gun from one of the dead terrorists, and eventually holds them off until help arrives. So I think it's it's very similar in theme to Die Hard. And of course, when you mention the professionals, it's important to remember that the action movie boom of the 1980s wasn't solely an American phenomenon. Britain had its, its very own action movie smash hit in the form of Who Dares Wins. Yeah, Who Dares Wins is a very controversial film because I remember at the time it was absolutely slated by any kind of left-wing critics. I mean, I remember reading very negative reviews of the film in Punch and The Guardian. They absolutely hated the film because um, they made out the CND 
and peace protesters to be like the villains of the story, although in actual fact it was made clear in the film that the, the People's Lobby terrorist group was a completely different thing from the CND and wasn't actually connected with them. The People's Lobby was actually portrayed as a kind of anarchist group. But it was a very controversial film. But it also showed that Britain was capable of making action films which were just as good as anything that America, the Americans could um, turn out. And unfortunately, Who Dares Wins didn't do very well at the American box office. And apparently one reason for this was that President Ronald Reagan liked the film. He was shown a personal copy of the film by producer Ewan Lloyd at Camp David and President Reagan actually went on record as saying how much he liked the film and all the things he liked about it, such as the script and the, the um, photography and the action and so on. But unfortunately, when word got out that Reagan liked the film, there was a kind of reaction from the liberal establishment in Hollywood. And as a result, Ewan Lloyd couldn't find an American distributor for the film. So the film became little known in America, which is the most important market for any film. And as a result, there was no real follow-up to Who Dares Wins. Ewan Lloyd originally planned to make uh, at least three more films with, with star Lewis Collins, possibly playing the same character. The character of Captain Peter Skellen of ACS was to return in a film about the Falklands War, which was to be called um, Task Force South, also known as Battle of the South Atlantic. But unfortunately, this film never went ahead. Uh, one reason apparently was they couldn't raise finance. Possibly also there were political issues, because there was a lot of people in Britain, and there still are, who didn't really like the idea of a film about the Falklands War, and I think that is still the case. So, speaking now, several decades down the line from the 1980s, what do you feel are the key aspects of that particular period of action movie filmmaking that still stand up today? Well, I think, I think for a successful action film, you've got to have a hero that the audience can identify with. And the hero has got to be a man on a mission. The hero has got to have a definite goal. And so usually the hero is up against a number of villains who try and swart his plans. And also, the hero must be doing something that the audience agrees with. He must, the, the audience must sympathise with the, the hero. So, for example, in Commando, Colonel Matrix, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, his main goal is to rescue his young daughter, to save her from being murdered. And that, I think, is a plot that everyone can sympathise with. I think it's fair to say that everyone reading this book will have one, and I would imagine more than one, favourite of the films of the 1980s, because so many of them have become such enduring classics. Colin, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Dying Harder, Action Movies of the 1980s is published by Extremist Publishing and is available to buy from all good independent retailers and online booksellers worldwide. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll tune in again soon.